we're going to get into the word now. I'm going to do what I always do. I want to pray again. I'm going to pray that God would give us great inspiration to understand what his word means. There'd be more than words on a page, but there'd be words in our heart and our life. And so if you would pray with me this morning before we enter into God's word. Father God, we thank you so much for uh, this morning. We thank you for the communion that we shared together and the, the mystery of faith, the, the in, invitation you give us to come and sit at the table with you, our safe, our good, our holy God who loves us um, and who's drawing us into kingdom away from peril and through danger towards yourself. We give you thanks and praise for that this morning. We pray now as we come here to listening to the birds sing, I can't help it, Lord, and, and seeing the glory of your creation around us, we just join in all creation to learn from you. Would you be our teacher this morning? I pray that we would have attentiveness to what you have for us to know, that we wouldn't, uh, you know, we would just sit back and just listen and learn from you what you have to show us today. May you empower uh, us to understand your word. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher as you promised would happen, that we would know in our hearts that no one need convince us because we would know in our hearts that you love us and you're with us no matter what. And Father, for your glory, for the work that you do, for the power of your word and your witness, your faithfulness to us, we give you thanks and praise. We pray a prayer of unimaginable thanks to you, Father, because you gave us your only son that we could even know you. Thank you for that. We pray in his name. Amen. Awesome. So we're going to turn to Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. We just finished chapter 3, and so we're going to pick up in chapter 4. But someone asked me this week, they said, are we going chapter by chapter? And not really. We're going kind of thoughtishness of how the text breaks down. So sometimes we'll cover very little, and sometimes we'll cover a chapter, or maybe even more than a chapter. And so um, we're going to pick up today what happens to be in chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we might. Yeah, we brought a few of them out. That's awesome. Whoever brought the Bibles out, that's super cool. That's on page 794 of our Bibles on the tables in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open the Word and look at it. See what the Word says. You know, one of the things that happened this week is I was at VBS. I know I'm like a Bible nerd, and I'm also a pastor, so there's, a, you know, two strikes against me. But I couldn't help but listen attentively when people were teaching what the Bible says. And often we have a tendency, I have a tendency to do it too, where I'll just kind of say, I think it says approximately this. But you know what? If, you, if you're not looking at the Word, you can't tell if people are, are, are accurate or inaccurate in the Word. And so I would always encourage you, because I can be as inaccurate as anybody, I'd encourage you to look at the Word for yourself and say, well, that's not exactly what that says, does it? And, and wrestle and pray and ponder with me what the Word says. That's why I always encourage you to open it, by the way, so you check me, right? So here we go, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, continuing on um, in this idea of, of how we are to uh, think about who he is. And this letter so far has had a big issue about Apollos and Paul and, um, and Cephas and Christ. And Paul is pushing all of us toward the reality of who Christ is. And so here's what Paul says then. So then, men ought to regard us, that's Paul, Apollos, and others, as servants of Christ. And that's the first thing on the card this morning is servants of Christ. I want to talk about what that means a little bit. Um, it's not just servants of anybody. It's not servants of all things. It's servants of a particular mission. Paul has one thing he wants made known amongst the Corinthian church. And in fact, it becomes the very marker of Paul's entire uh, life. This week in VBS, we spent some time talking about Saul becoming Paul. And it was awesome. But if you go back and you read Paul's conversion story, he was radically converted because he encountered directly the very God of creation. And he crowned him in a way where he was rebuked for not, for um, 
being hostile toward Jesus, right? That's a pretty radical conversion. But there's a key in here where it says that then he was anointed. I think it was Ananias. See, you got to check me on this. Ananias, who laid hands on Paul. There's no indication that Ananias had a special gift to do this. He laid hands, and Paul, when the scales fell off, you heard the story, he received the Holy Spirit, right? And that's the anointing of Christ. That is the Messiah, the spirit of Messiahship that was given to Paul. And Paul would say, as one who's abnormally born, right? Meaning to be born again. I want to say something. I've said it to you before, but you cannot, we said this in what, chapter 3, you can't discern spiritual things without the Spirit of God. You can't. We like, we, we are so like to do our own thing, right? I mean, I know I'm a dad. I like to do things by myself. Last night, my kids were in my house. I like, can I help you with this stuff? And I'm like, no, I got it, right? We want to do it ourselves. But this is not a thing we can do ourselves. We need the Spirit of God in order to do anything of value. Or as Paul would say, you have to be one as one abnormally born to encounter the real God of the real cosmos. And so that's what Paul says here. He says, so then you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. This is Paul's own title for himself. As a matter of fact, you might, if you're paying attention, you might remember that back in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says the same thing. Um, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive. Oh no, that's not the right verse at all. Where is it at? Oh, I'm on 2-5. Here we go. Here we go, church. See, if anybody, did anybody miss that I was in the wrong spot? Here it is, chapter 3, verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what, after all, is Paul? Only servants. What, though? Through whom you came to believe. Like, this is what Paul's main mission is. This is what Apollos' main mission is. And um, as he said last week, one to plant, one to water, but God gives growth, right? And so he sees himself very much in this mission of Christ. And he's trying, church, and I hope we are too, trying to rightly orient ourselves. He's rightly orienting himself under the headship of, of Jesus, of the Messiah, the anointed one. And so he's like, we're servants, but not servants of the world. We're servants of Christ. This is why the church of Christ ought to be able to come together under a common banner of Jesus and serve together. And when we struggle, we ought to learn from the struggle. Paul says that we're only servants, but servants through whom you came to believe. So what does it mean to be a servant of Christ? That's our topic this morning. What does it mean to be, because you know, I, I guess there's two ways we can go about this. We can read this and we can say, well, that's true for Paul and Apollos, but it's not true for me. I'm just a believer. <laughs> just a believer. Maybe, or maybe God's gifted you in a unique way that he's asking you to live out your giftedness for his glory in this life. Like, do you ever think about Paul or, or about Apollos when they were before, before they were who we know them to be? Do you think that they saw themselves rightly? Do you think they saw the future missions or the future work they had to do? And I don't just mean in the church. I mean anywhere in life. The creative ability you have. Maybe um, I was talking to someone this week. They, have, they love to play baseball. How is your baseball glorifying to God? Maybe you're a, you know, you work in an office job. How is being in the office glorifying to God? Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad. How is your role as a, as a father or mother at in your house glorifying to God? There's this idea that Paul says you should consider all men as servants of Christ, anyone who is doing the work that we're doing, he's rightly positioning the church again under the headship of Christ. Okay, so here we go. Seven markers then. We're going to get them from the text of what it means to be a servant of Christ. So here's what he says. So then you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those who what? Here's the first thing. Are entrusted with the secret things of God. Or maybe your translation says the mysteries of God. 
one of the things that's really interesting to me as I engage people with the gospel and try to think through our, my life practically is that God is mysterious. Um, our friend Lance Carpenter likes to say, God doesn't do the same thing twice in the same way. He does the same things, but in different ways for his glory, right? Like if you read through the Bible, the miracles, they happen a little differently every time. There's like no formula you can get down to to say, now this is how you make it happen. Matter of fact, I mentioned to you that the Apostle Paul, he had his, when he was Saul, that uh, Ananias, and check me on that, laid his hands on Paul, and Paul received the Holy Spirit in that moment when the scales fell off, right? That's how Paul received the Holy Spirit. But you know also that in Acts chapter 10, there was a family who had received the Spirit before Paul got there. And Paul says, man, you got the same, or before Peter got there, and Peter's like, you got the same Spirit here. It's the Spirit of God. So God does different, the same things in different ways, right? He's mysterious, but he's not mysterious as one who's hiding. This doesn't mean a mystery like something you can't figure out or know. Because like many of us think, well, okay, so how does my life really work? Like, how am I supposed to follow Jesus? What does it mean to give my life over to Christ? Listen, this is the journey you take with him. But the requirement is that God is involved. There's no formula for following Christ without God. There's no formula for following Jesus without Jesus, right? We follow Jesus because he's in our life. And so this mystery then is not a mystery of like, you know, like a whodunit, you know, like dun, 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 who did it? How to get all the answers, find all the clues. No, it means a mystery, listen to me, of divine revelation in your life. A God-sized revelation in your life, in your heart, for real. This is the walk of Christ. This is, means to, to walk around in the Spirit. It means to be listening to the divine mystery that God has in your life. And then there's another component because then we can get off in the weeds, right? We can say, I think God called me to be king of the world. Probably didn't, okay? So then we need some friends, brothers and sisters who also are walking around in the Spirit of God, walking around in Christ, who come alongside of us and begin to help us understand the mysteries of Christ. That's why Paul says what? We are stewards, we are managers of the household of God in the, in the mysteries of Christ. Like we are stewards of the gift of Christ. And so, so we together then become to come around and say, um, Bill, I don't think God's calling you to be king of the world, right? That's the second thing. Then there's this third thing where like together we're, we're, we're being taught as a church what it means to be a church together. I said the little C church, right? And then we gather like this and, and we're like, you know, good times and bad times. And it's like, this is what God's doing. So sometimes if we think things are like totally going, you know, sideways and all, all hope is lost, someone can come and reveal the mystery of God to us and say, no, all hope is not lost. Remember again the gospel. Remember again the promise we have for eternal life. Remember again the promise we have for God to be with us right now, today, in a powerful way. See, it's the mystery of God. But Paul says that we are stewards. A, a marker of, of uh, being a servant of Christ is to be a steward of the mystery of God. Now, guess what this does? This doesn't give us a lot of power. <laughs> it doesn't give us a lot of power to command things. It gives us a lot of opportunity to listen, to observe and to learn, to walk together. I said to you a few weeks ago in, in one of our messages, I was saying, um, you know, sometimes we say, I don't know. I don't know. But I know someone who knows. And that's the same idea here. We don't have all the answers, but yet we know that God is working all things for his glory. And listen to me, church, our good. So this idea that we are stewards of God's mysteries means keepers of the house or the dwellings of God and these mysteries, these things that must be revealed by God himself uh, to his church. 
Now, um, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, here's a bit of a, an illustration maybe. How many of you like to read? God bless you. God bless you readers. When I was a kid, I liked to read. Um, I quit reading for a whole bunch of my life. And then, and then funny enough, and this is true, after I became, I became a believer in Christ, I started reading again. Now I have books everywhere. I've read most of them, kind of, right? How many of you, uh, when you get a, a new book, maybe you see it laying on a counter, just a book, somebody brought a book, um, pick it up and look at the cover. Anybody do that? See if you're interested in it. Yeah, maybe. How many of you flip it open and look at the, the last page? Nobody? Adolph's like, nope. Yeah. Logan, my man. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have a page on your Kindle. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I saw a book on my counter this week, and I opened it up, and I flipped it to the last page. And I kid you not, this is probably a 450-something page book you got to read. And, and just what happened where I flipped to, I was flipping to the back, you know, and it's like a conclusion and summary. And it's like, if I have to leave you with two points, here's the two points of this book. And there were two sentences, and I thought, well, psh, done. <laughs> There's something about that that's like the mystery of God that we can say, he's like, here's the point. You have to live the whole life. Now, you know what I did? I flipped backwards to it. I read the cartoons and I read the headers. You know what I mean? I called it red. It wasn't my book. To be fair, it was someone else's book. I read it like in five minutes. But I'm like, yeah, I kind of know what it says, right? But we have to live out every word. We have to live out every day of our lives, the mystery of God. And yet, there's this end that we're aiming toward, the mystery of God. Listen, the salvation through Christ. All will be raised. That's a mystery of God. We're resurrection people. That's a mystery of God. It will not always be this way. And so we have the, the kind of look at the end of the book. And I would encourage you, by the way, that's not cheating. To look at the end, to get a glimpse toward the end is not cheating. It's to know the things that are to come. It's reasonable to ask God those questions. God, what is this about? Why is this happening? What would you have me to learn? How ought I to respond? Lord, and then here's the key really many times. I need you. I need you again to be with me. Well, the first thing, the marker is of a, of a, a servant of Christ is to be stewards. That's, um, and you, by the way, stewards don't keep things for themselves. They give them to other people of the mystery of God. We do this through our community together. All right. That's verse one. Here we go. Verse two. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust, that's stewards again, by the way, must prove faithful. And so the second thing is, the first is that we are, um, I'm going to follow on with you, um, stewards of God's mysteries. The second is we must prove faithful. We must prove full of faith. In this case, it's the servants of Christ. The stewards are required to be found faithful. I wonder if you realize, you know, we often will lament our culture and things are happening in our lives, but I wonder if you recognize, as I do from time to time, that people are looking for someone who actually believes what they say they believe. They're looking for someone who lives their life in a way that's consistent with the things they say with their mouth. And I'm not picking on the church because there's a bunch of people in the world that proclaim things but don't live them out. There's a bunch of people in the world that say one thing and do another. As a matter of fact, sometimes with our children, they'll accuse us of this. They'll say, yeah, you say that, mom, dad, but you don't do that, right? And so here's this idea that we must be proven faithful, that there are people who are seeking honest people. And that means if you're not there, you don't say you're there yet. And in the ways that you are, you live it out, and you are. And so Paul says that we'll be, I love that one of the key words here is um, to, to be a seek, to be sought out like that. Like when you are found, 
it is required if you're a servant of Christ to be found faithful. What's he talking about? He's talking about his role as an apostle. He's like, come and look at my life and you will find me faithful to what God's called me to do. Go look at Apollos and you will find him faithful to what God has called him to do. He's kind of rooting all these things in, uh, in faith. Faith in what? Faith in Paul? Faith in Apollos? I don't think so. No, faith in what God is doing. Faith that God is who he says he is and he is faithful to do the work. And we must prove faithful by our lives. I want you to think about some stories. And this is a thing. We ought to have an awareness toward it when we hear someone sharing something from Scripture. They say, like, man, if you want a really good life, read the book. Read the book. It's full of all how to have a great life. I don't know. Have you read the book? We're halfway through in 365. It's really troubling sometimes. People will seek out faithful people. You know a story that always comes to mind to me? God's on his heavenly throne and the, and the enemy of God comes to him and says, you know, I'm going to go find someone. And God says this, have you thought about my servant Job? And I go, wait, God, what? <laughs> Leave Job alone. <laughs> Why? Why does God point out my faithful servant? Have you seen this one? Check him out. If you read that book, from that moment that God kind of grazed some attention to the enemy about his servant Job, Job is just afflicted in life. I wonder if he's living his best life now as he's mourning on an ash heap. I mean, it's a terrible, hard story. Listen, I'm not saying God has called us to a, a life of only suffering, but we ought not be confused when God says, have you considered my servant? When there's a spiritual warfare, and you go, God, why is this attack happening to me? And it's like, well, why not me? Who is better equipped than one who has Christ? Who's better called to walk through this in faith, demonstrating faith in what God is doing than one who has been marked for salvation and redemption? Listen to me. One who's been marked for resurrection. People will come looking for faithfulness in us. They will observe and examine our lives. Does she really believe it? Or is she just saying she believes it? Is he really that way when no one else is around? Or is he different? Paul says that servants of Christ must be found faithful. Listen to me, I want to make a correction. Not found perfect. He doesn't say you have to be found perfect, you have to be found faithful. Still believing that God can do what he says he can do. That means that we always depend on him. I want to share a... Um, a verse from the Gospel of Luke with you. Luke chapter 9, um, verse 62, 61-62. Someone came to Jesus and said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to all my family. And he said this. This is one of those verses that kind of scared me, to be honest with you. I was a new believer. The scales had fallen off my eyes, and I was excited about Jesus. And I was just reading through the Bible to see what else the Bible said about my life in Christ, you know, how, how awesome it was going to be and stuff. And this is one of the things that Jesus said in reply to that guy. He said, let me go say goodbye to my friends. He said this, no one who puts his hand to the plow and even looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And I was like, really? You can't look back one time, just plow and look over your shoulder for, I, no, because we're going forward with Jesus. I don't think he's saying you can't love people and be and all that, but your, your vision has changed. 
your belief has changed and your hope is not in the past. We must be found faithful. That verse was really troubling to me because I began to see and I talked to a dear friend of mine who had been following Jesus longer than me and I said, what does that mean? And he's like, I don't know. It makes me uncomfortable though. It means that the moment you begin to walk with Christ, you're with Christ forever. That we, this this is, this time, this tendency we have to look back and be forlorn, the way things could have been or should have been, that, that if we had our druthers, we would not have had it this way, that that stuff is not of God, but the, the planning, the timing, and the, the opportunities that God gives us, whether good or bad, whether great experiences are troubling, or opportunities for us to believe again the gospel. It's hard for me not to preach about this church. Israel, out in the desert, four-day journey, turns into 40 years or four weeks January 40 years why because they don't think God can do what he said he can do but he did we must be proven faithful that's the second marker we see here now it is required that those who have been given a trust must be found faithful my bible says proven but it must be found when people find you you must be you're required to be faithful that's how you know you're serving Christ Verse 3, I carry very little if I am judged. Now Paul's going to move then into this idea of what it means to be faithful. I carry very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. He then begins to move into what it means to look, what, it, what does it look like to be faithful? And Paul's going to break this down then. But here's the, here's the fill in the blank for you. We, will, uh, we are judged by the Lord. We are judged by the Lord. Um. He says, I'm going to read the next verse, verse 4. I don't even judge myself, verse 4. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So to be a servant of Christ, you know that you're being judged by God. And we're going to talk about why this isn't like a harsh judgment, like, should have done better, right? That's not the kind of judgment we're talking about. But we will be examined, we'll be judged uh, by God. But Paul says there are three particular areas of judgment or examination or inquiry or investigation or questioning that he is not worried about at all. Three areas. He says, I'm not worried about these three areas of judgment or examination. It's, it, the word judgment there isn't really exactly right. It's like people who would inquire or look into Paul's life and say, what does it really look like, Paul? Are you being faithful in your life, right? The three he lists are what? You. <laughs> Us. The reader. The person in Corinth receiving the letter. You remember the part of the conflict was, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos. He's still addressing that. And he's like, I'm not worried about how you find me. I'm not worried about what you think about me. That's a, that sounds like a pretty arrogant statement to make, right? When he first makes it that way. I'm not worried about you and what you say. Look at verse 3. I carry very little if I am judged or examined by you, first of all. So that's the first thing he's not worried about. He's not worried about what the readers think about him. He's not worried about what they, if they hold him in high esteem or low esteem. He's not worried about they think he's, you know, whatever he's been doing. It would seem that those who have been, uh, who had who received the letter have been judging Paul, either positively or negatively. And we talked about that, right? So they aren't necessarily all against Paul, but they could be saying he's a good guy. He's like, I'm not worried about what you think of me, good or bad. I'm not worried about it. He's not worried about the second thing is, it says human courts. It's really interesting, but it means the, the judgment of days. The judgment of days. What you think of how I've spent my life. I'm not worried about what you think of how I spent my life, Paul says. Second one, that's pretty bold words, you know. Um, this idea that uh, 
Um, have you ever heard someone say, uh, what have you done for me lately? You know, there's another story about in the Bible about people who have been faithful in much and then all of a sudden it's like over and they just complete despondency. Like nothing good's ever happened in their life. We have those, own pattern, we have those patterns in our own lives sometimes as well. So Paul's not worried about human days or other people, people examining how he's living his life. He's not too worried about that in this moment. We all have the same amount of time each day, but we have that nagging suspicion of how much we're supposed to get done. I know I got some uh, dads in the room. How many of you have a list you can't get through? Yeah? And like the minute you think you're getting close to the end, you look at the bottom of the list and it's gotten longer. I know I'm talking to dads and the mom's like, you haven't seen my list. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> I get it. Your lists are longer than ours. That's how life is, isn't it? How, do you, how much you get done? What you, Paul says, I'm not worried about what people think of how I spent my days. I'm not worried about that. And then the third thing, and it's really intriguing, but Paul says this, I'm not even worried about how I judge myself. You have a voice in your head. You're not a good Christian. You're not doing the right thing. That thing that we doubt, you know, did God really say, is that really true? Paul's like, I'm not worried about those things. I'm not even worried about the voice in my own head that judges me. For good or for bad, by the way. The one that says, wow, you're great. You've done great. You're an awesome Christian. You're so much better than those other people. That voice isn't right either. Paul says, no, I don't regard myself in any of these three areas, not even myself. My conscience is clear is what he says. And even still, and this is the key, it is not my conscience that has made me righteous. That's hidden in the text there. But he says, my conscience is clear, but it does not make me, the word says, innocent. That means it does not make, it doesn't bring justification for me. Now here's the key then. He says all that stuff, and that sounds like pride, but it's not because he says what? It is the Lord who judges me. Jesus Christ is my judge. And so we will be judged um, by Christ. Here's the thing, though. I said the judgment's not like that tisk, tisk, tisk kind of judgment, like a heavy-handed father, unpleased, unsatisfied with us. It's like this. He is the judge, and he's the justifier. He's the one that says what's right and wrong, and he's the one that says it's right. He's the spirit dwelling in us, living out our faith day to day. I can't imagine in the middle of suffering that Job felt like he was doing the Lord's work. And yet, when we read the story of Job, how are we not encouraged to believe all the more? Why? Because he's doing the Lord's work. He was being faithful and being judged by God for his efforts. He says that Jesus is going to be our judge, and he says he's going to do it in a couple of different ways. Um, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. Why? Why should we wait for God's judgment to decide? You know, last week we talked about planting and watering and how things grow in season. And often we'll say like, oh, this isn't working. Like, this is totally not working. How do you know? What Paul says is, let's wait until the time of the Lord, the appointed time, until he comes. And then what does it say? He will, two things— Jesus is going to bring to light that is, that is hidden in darkness. I want to talk about that. And he will expose the motives of men's hearts. That means there's two things that I think we can take to the bank with Jesus. The first is that he sees everything. You might read that he's going to bring to light the things that are exposed in darkness and think, yeah, all the sin. He's going to drag all the sin out into the light. This is true. But it also means the things that are obscured. The things that aren't quite seen. You know, this morning there was a bunch of stuff that was done for here. 
We mentioned the Bibles on the table. We mentioned the, the handouts were done. We got the song sheets here. Somehow, magically, all this equipment showed up somehow. You know, we did all these things, but there's other things that were done, right? That we're not even thinking about. Somebody probably separated these tables out. Somebody probably wiped the floors up or wiped down the table. Somebody probably brought out some coffee. Someone, right? Picked up a friend. Like, those things aren't unnoticed by our Lord. See, that's the thing that's troubling sometimes. I feel like often we believe if, 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 if all the attention, if people aren't seeing it, it's not a value. That's not true. He says he's going to reveal the things that are done in darkness. That doesn't just mean like in sinfulness. We interpret it that way often. But it means things that are obscured from vision that people don't see. The little acts of faith, the little things that you do and that I do because we believe God's called us to do it. I know some of you. And you'll feel the Lord t- call, touch, you know, Reach out to somebody. Send them a text. Give them a call. Go over and say something to them. Ask how they're doing. And when they say fine, ask them again. Why? Because it's not unnoticed by the Lord. That when he comes to assess what was of value, what was of worth, what was faithfulness, he will judge it rightly. That's why we don't judge now if this isn't working. Because we see in his time that his work is done. The first thing. The second thing is this. That um, I'm totally lost where I'm at right now. Let's see. Therefore, judge nothing. Yeah, here we go. Bring light what is in darkness, and he will expose the motivations of the heart. That means that God is more concerned about why we do things than what we do. He's more concerned about our intention and what we're trying to do. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to do something and it just went terribly wrong? Like you had really good intentions. You really did. And it just went totally sideways and maybe someone got offended or hurt and, and you're just like, oh, I didn't mean for that to happen that way. I'm so sorry. And you're like, I don't want that to keep you from doing what God's calling you to do because he knows the motivation of our heart. This is why we shouldn't speak quickly about one another and what our motivations are. One time, I remember, um, Corey Adolph's here this morning. I remember one time he was preaching and he said um, that, we sh- that the most dangerous thing, I want to blame you, maybe your dad, one of you two said this, um, one of the most dangerous things is try to, to try to um, discern someone else's motivations. That guy cut me off on purpose. <laughs> that, that person is, is being, uh, you know, not talking to me because they don't like me. But maybe that's not it at all. Maybe that person's on the way to an emergency. Or maybe the person that's not talking to you is so hurt they can't speak or they'll break into tears. But see, we, we start to think we know motivations. Listen, we should be faithful because God knows the motivation of our heart. I want to give you a word of encouragement. If you've done something with good motives and it's gone sideways, I want you to trust in the Lord that it was good work. People come against you, maybe cost you a friendship, but you're like, Lord, I was obedient. I did what you asked me to do. I'm, gonna, I'm believing in you to do some work in that. You never know what God is doing I can tell you this, before I was a believer in Christ, many, many people shared the gospel with me, and I was a harsh, ugly person to them. But you know what? When I came to faith, none were forgotten. I'm not going to go back and tell them, hey, guess what happened? (laughs) But not one effort was wasted. I remember thinking back and going, that's what they were doing. That's why they told me. That's why they acted so weird about it because they really loved me. It wasn't wasted. He knows 
the manifestations of our heart, or he manifests the motivations of our hearts, what the word says there. So I wonder then, here's my question on this. When you set out to serve someone in the name of Christ, who are you worried about pleasing? If you, if you feel called to do something, who are you worried about serving or making happy? Paul says there's only one he's worried about. It's the Lord. He's open to rebuke. He's open to correction. But he's like, but I am serving the Lord with everything I have. Not always perfectly. But that's what I'm doing. All right, we're going to move here. Verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. That's the first thing. He will expose the motives of men's hearts. He will, he will reveal it, whether good or bad. So if it was good intended or bad intended, it will be revealed in the Lord's day. But then look at the last part of verse 5. And at that time, each one will receive his praise or her praise from God. You see, that's why I said this isn't that harsh condemning. This isn't that harsh judgment. This is the Lord looking at the work we're doing and the fact that they did good. Let me ask you a question. How many of you were nervous when I asked children to come up and serve communion? The parents were like nervous. How many of you were waiting for that sound of the trip? Right? Oh no. And how many of you would have stood up and said, I can't believe you screwed that up. Then why do we think God is like that? Why don't we think God is like, wow, look at you. You did so good. You tried. He said, if any of you are children, come up here and you went. We will each, and this is a mystery, but we will each receive our praise from God. That's mind-boggling to me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine after a life of faith and struggling to hear the God who made you say, good job. Yeah, but it didn't go perfect. Hey, good job. I'm blown away by that verse. After saying he will judge things rightly, it says each one will receive his praise. Paul's not worried about what people think. He's not worried about what he thinks. He's worried about what God thinks. And he says, in that moment, in that time, God's going to go, well done, good and faithful servant. Those are the words. Way to be faithful in a hard situation. So that's what we have. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, Paul says, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written then you will not take pride in, uh, in one man over against another. Because which of you is different from anyone else? And so my, my t- passes over, maybe it says puffed up, don't go beyond what's written, uh, then you will not take pride in the one of you over another. Here's something that's a mark of being a faithful Christian servant. It doesn't puff others up. Being a faithful servant, being a, Christ, a servant of Christ, doesn't puff others up. As a matter of fact, often it's the opposite effect. It deflates us a little bit more. We go, this is what it means to serve Christ? Paul says, yeah, don't boast. Don't be prideful. Um, 
These things have been applied to Apollos and himself first. What did Paul do? He let the wind out of the sails a little bit. He could have just stoked the flames. He could have stoked the fire. But no, he put it out and he said, this isn't about us at all. It's about our Lord who's done so much for us on our behalf. And we're just mere servants serving you with the gospel um, so that you might learn, don't go beyond what is written. Don't, don't, don't think more of yourself than you want. Paul says this later in other places. But think of yourselves rightly. Don't go beyond what is written down. Then you will not take pride in one over another. You will believe that you're part of the body, but you're not the whole body. So it ought not, we should not puff others up. And we certainly should not puff ourselves up. But that's a sign of a, a faithful ministry that does not um, puff others up. Um, it means to, to make ourselves arrogant or, or prideful. Why? Verse 7, we got into a little bit. Here it is. Because what, ma- Paul asks three questions here. What makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you act as though you didn't? Or why do you boast in what you have? He undresses all Christians in this moment. This is a 2,000-year-old writing, and we read it today, and it still undresses all of us. Why are you full of pride? You did not figure this out. God gave you salvation. Why are you different? You know what Paul says? We are not different, or we are not better than others. We're not. That's part of our life in Christ, that we are the same. No matter the condition of what's going on in their lives, we're no better than they are. He asks those questions. What makes us different? The answer is nothing. Uh, What do you have you didn't receive? I mean, all the way around. The answer is nothing, right? I was driving down the street this week, and um, our friends over at Southern Baptist Church had a, they always had that little joke sign thing. You might see that on the way out of town. And I think this week it says something like, give it all away, because I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul right? You've received everything you have in this life, everything, and we ought to then not be prideful or proud or or puffed up by what we have or what we've accomplished or what we've been blessed with. We shouldn't be arrogant and especially not over others. That's what the word says because we're no better than other people. Too often as mere servants of Christ, and Paul says those words, who are Paul's, who are Paul and who is Apollos? mere servants who, who, through whom you came to believe. And as mere servants, we often see ourselves as better than those around us. As a matter of fact, uh, we often see ourselves as better, listen to me, church, than those we have come to save. That's not true. I want to tell you three real quick stories. The first is this. I have a dear friend, some of you know who he is, who's in prison. And I was spending some time, I'm not bragging on that. I just love to go and hang out. And I was, t- was just talking through things, and he said, you know what one of the biggest problems with pastors who come into the prison are? They think they bring Jesus with them. But I have news that Jesus is work- working here all the time. Jesus is here before you got here, and he'll be here after you leave, Christian. You come in, you do something, even if you're a traveling evangelist. Look at what I did. I come through the town, I did a big thing. Listen, God was working before you got there. If anyone came to faith, it was because God was working in our life. And when you leave, God will continue to work in our lives. It's a failure to believe that. Oh, these poor people. Let me tell you another story. We've had the opportunity to serve in some inner city ministries. And you go down and you're like, oh, it's so, and we know what church, we ought to get uncomfortable. We ought to get uncomfortable because we're so well off and others aren't. We ought to go down there and we ought to wrestle what that means and how we ought to participate with them in that life. But don't believe, again, that you're bringing something to them that they don't have in Christ. Like that they aren't, isn't available to them in Christ. Go down to the, um, Uh, projects in East St. Louis and we hang out with people there sometimes and we're there it's too easy to condescend I will bring you great blessing no we're not better than anyone else we're not 
the same people, the same sin problems, the same struggles, and listen to me, here's the good news, the same Savior. Third story became profoundly clear to me. We were down serving, we were overseas, we were down, it is technically down, south I guess is down from here, right? Um, we were serving in Guatemala, and we were up there with our friend Lorinda, and we were on this mountain outside of the city, Antigua, and we were looking at these houses with like fire pits on the floor to cook and a baby on a mama's back and fathers who were not being responsible for their children and creating orphanages and it was just a hot mess and we were talking about what the people needed there and it hit me that they need the gospel. It's the same thing. We're the same people. It's the same problem. Why would I say that? Because we come home and we get in our air-conditioned houses and we get our 60-inch flat panel TV and we go, hey, I'm doing pretty good. We have the same sin problem. We're no better we're no better than the mom stooping over a fire in the middle of a hut trying to feed her children. We're no better, and we ought not think that we are. The truth is that God is at work already. The gospel is the gospel everywhere, and we ought to recognize that. That's an exercise in itself right there. If we have a tendency to think about similar life and think, I'm better than that, just let that be a rebuke. That we're not better. How am I like that? Oh God, how have you had mercy on me for that very same besetting sin? You've heard those words there, but for the grace of God go I, right? And we're going to close with this last one here. So don't boast. Don't be prideful. You received everything you have. You're not better than anyone else. Verse 8, Paul says this, and he gets a little snarky here, really. It's kind of interesting to read him this way. Already you have all that you want. He says a few things. You have already become rich. You've already become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become king. So he's kind of being a little sarcastic, like, oh, you're, you've already got it all figured out. You're, you're super Christians compared to us mere mortals. And he goes, oh, how I wish that you had actually become rulers so that we might be rulers with you. Because it seems to me that God has put, and listen to the word, us apostles, those who are sent out on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. Remember they used to have those games? They would get the warriors and they'd pray them through the streets. Yeah, you said that prayed downtown, right? But you would go to the Colosseum to die at the end of that. People would cheer for you right until you took your last breath. And Paul says, I feel like that's how we are. We're like being led through the tunnel into the arena of our death. We have been made a spectacle for the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. Are you so wise in Christ? We are weak, but you are strong. We are you are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slaughtered or slandered, we answer kindly. And up to this moment, we have become the very, listen to the word, this is incredible. We become the very scum of the earth, the very refuse of the world. I think Paul meant it when he said we're no better than anybody else. I think he meant it. You know what the word says? The apostles are put on display by God and for God. Not to impress people. Not to, not to have them take notice of how awesome, but to bring glory to himself. To bring glory to himself. You read through that list. After you read that job description Paul lays out there, how many of you still want the job? How many still want the job now? being brutally treated, having no home, being hungry and thirsty, working hard but not being appreciated, being cursed and only blessing in return, 
being persecuted but having to stand up under persecution, being slandered but then answering with kind words, and then being thought the least of all people. I think, uh, you know, we're at an interesting cultural moment because there's a tendency to want to say, hey, hey, Christians aren't that bad, right? No, no, we're really cool people. I mean, I do this, right? I'm the cool Christian. I'm not like those other ones. No, man, we're the least of all people. We're just saved. We're no better than anybody else. And God is putting us on display. Listen to what the word says before angels and people. What does that mean? What does that mean? Anybody know? Do you you think that there's angels looking at the state of the world right now and going, oh man, what a mess. And you got people standing there looking at our lives going, those people, and they say that they follow the one true God. Uh, Have you seen them? Have you seen the way their lives are? Do you see the kind of cars they drive? Oh my gosh. Do you see the kind of lifestyle they live? You know, I think, I think our Savior, our God, who put his son on the cross that we could be fully redeemed, stands in heaven as the enemies clamor, and even his angels go like, oh, what's going to happen? And he goes, watch this. Watch. Watch what I can do. I don't know where you're at in your life, man, and I don't know what's going on for you. hope things are going super good, but from that, I want you to be encouraged that God is doing a powerful work. If you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins, and if you're listening to him every day in your life, he's doing a powerful work in your life. And the louder the noise gets and the worse it gets, and maybe even the voice inside it says, this is not working anymore, the louder that gets, God's right there going, watch this. Just watch. Watch what my servants can do for my glory. I hope that's where you're at. I want to pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. I told you last week, after the message on being the church, it was so powerful to see it unfold to VBS. What's this week going to be? How are we going to see opportunities to serve and honor Christ when people are sneering or mocking or ridiculing? How are we going to continue to bless people when they're cursing? I pray we find a way. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. I thank you for the way that... uh, We can so often think that we're better, but we're not. I thank you for the way that you kind of gently dress us down and say, no, but I love you. You love us. Oh, Father, for the grace that you poured out that we do not deserve, for salvation you brought that we ought not to have. And indeed, Father, for the truth of the Holy Spirit living in and through us that transforms us inside out, I pray we would be like those faithful biblical witnesses. No one need write a book about our lives, Father, only that you would be glorified, only that you would be praised because we were found faithful to you. And even that, Lord, isn't of ourselves, but you, you've done it all. I pray for my friends here who maybe haven't surrendered their life to you, you know, and they're still trying to find that way to do it themselves. They're like, I'm gonna be a better person. God, I promise I'm gonna do better next time. I pray that would die. I pray it would die at the cross of Christ because you did it all. There's nothing we can do to bring salvation to ourselves, Father, but you brought salvation through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I pray if there's anyone here still trying to run on that treadmill, that they would just trust you. And then I pray that when someone says, hey, I need a kid to serve, the Lord, we might say, I'll go. Help us to try. Help us to try and to trust your grace in judgment. We love you so much, and we pray in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.